You're listening to So What, a podcast from Canadian Mennonite University. My name is Jonas Cornelson. Welcome to the first episode of So What, a new podcast from CMU. CMU is located on Treaty 1 land in Winnipeg, Manitoba. I graduated from CMU in 2016 and am now coming to you from Treaty 7, Calgary, Alberta. So What is a podcast where I'm taking you through the top stories and takeaways from CMU's public events. These are conversations you won't hear anywhere else, and I want to share what really stands out to me. I'm going to do it in about 20 minutes. Thanks for joining me. Let's get started. And it turns out science isn't a set of weapons. Don't say unprecedented. So in September 2020, several months into the COVID-19 pandemic, CMU hosted an event called Face to Face, Seeing Through the Pandemic, The Art of Noticing. It featured four CMU faculty from different disciplines, and we'll hear from two of them today. First up is Rachel Krauss, a biologist who teaches science at CMU. Rachel talked about the language we use to describe pandemics like COVID-19. We often hear this is a battle, and science is our best weapon to fight it. But what if language like that hides the deeper truths that the scientific process can teach us? Let's hear Rachel's thoughts. I have to say, I'm pleased that the scientific process is is in the public eye right now. We're interested in it. We're curious about it. We think that it's important. I think we always kind of have this idea that science somehow is important, but we're all eager right now to know what the scientists are finding out, right? We hear about it every day on the news and we talk about it with our friends. Um, and, I, and I'm really heartened that people seem to be interested in understanding it better. But science can be confusing. Partly that's because sometimes we confuse science for something that it's not. So I think what we wish for is science to be this set of weapons that we can fight this battle with. And it turns out science isn't a set of weapons. Um, Science is a way of knowing about the world. It's a systematic way that we chip away at the truth, that we chip away trying to figure out what's true. It's kind of like, you know, when you watch on TV and someone goes into this really dark room and they've got a tiny little flashlight and you, I, I always think, just turn the light on, turn the light on. But they've got this little flashlight and they're looking around the room. Um, they're shining it around, trying to figure out what's going on. That's what science is like. So imagine that COVID is like that dark room and scientists are in there shining their little flashlights around and uh, trying to understand what, what all is in there, what all is going on. And sometimes they'll be shining their flashlight and they'll think they've figured out the outlines of something. But then maybe another scientist comes along with their little flashlight and they further illuminate it. And together, maybe they get a slightly different answer than, than that first scientist originally, originally thought was true. Right? Maybe scientists change their minds. And in fact, that's what, we've, that's what we've found. That's partly why it's so confusing, because that's how science works. We build on the, 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 those little corners of knowledge that, that our colleagues have, have uncovered for us. 
right? So science is a way of knowing. I'm going to cut in here. Rachel said science is a way of knowing. She also talked about scientists chipping away at the truth. And what that says to me is that the things we know through science aren't static. Adding another flashlight to a dark room can always reveal something else. This is important because when we want science to be a weapon, I think what we're really after is certainty and control. Next, Rachel refers to the writing of epidemiologist David Waltner Taves and his book On Pandemics. He has a very different view of COVID-19 than a battle. Here's a key quote. In that first chapter that he wrote in May, he said this, this, the pandemic, is not a battle to win. The best we can hope for is an uneasy, mutually respectful, naturally wary conversation. Hold on. An uneasy, mutually respectful, naturally wary conversation. With a virus? It can't talk. And it doesn't seem to respect us. Well, this is a metaphor, and it has its limits. But why would David Waltner Taves and Rachel Krauss prefer this conversation idea over framing COVID-19 as a battle? It turns out that if we focus on this virus in isolation, we miss the bigger picture of what it means for us to live in a shared environment with all other creatures great and small, even as small as a virus. Here's more from Rachel on why battle language is less than helpful. I think the problem with that language is that it, it leads us to the wrong conclusions. It suggests to us that we find that biomedical fix, right? We, we get that, this vaccine. I don't know if you have had these like dystopic sci-fi moments in your own life, but sometimes I find myself saying, well, when we have a vaccine, we will blah, blah, blah. And it, I feel like I'm in some kind of dystopic novel or something. Um, I think that's the wrong way to think about it because this is not the first pandemic we've had. These are things that, that have always come up for us. Actually, most of our diseases we share with other species. There are a few that we don't seem to, like smallpox. That was a good thing for us because we were able to eradicate it. But, but you'll notice that's the only one we've eradicated globally. Okay, that blew my mind. Rachel is reminding us most human diseases are shared with or come from other animals. So we can learn to manage them, but except for smallpox, they've never actually gone away. It's certainly harder to do contact tracing and vaccinations among wild animals. What's more is diseases are just part of life on Earth. There's a saying about this in Rachel's field of disease ecology. Healthy ecosystems have healthy parasites, have healthy diseases. It's a part of nature. And, and it turns out we're a part of nature, too. It's too bad for us, right? Um, but we're a part of it, too. And so my concern with that battle language, that winning or losing language, is that that allows us to forget that other stuff. And it allows us to... It allows us to kind of play God... It allows us to play God. That's another way of saying we want to be in control. But like Rachel said, we're a part of nature, and we'll just have to live with that. Let's hear from Rachel one more time as she describes ecology, 
and what it might teach us about the reality of pandemics. Let's talk a little bit, of it, little bit about ecology. So ecology is a, a discipline within biology that's interested in relationships between organisms, between um, organisms of the same kind or different kinds in their environment. Now also in that chapter that, uh, that Kenton and I have been talking about, Waltner Taves talks, um, he describes the emergence of this pandemic as predictable. Based on how we live with the rest of nature, we might say it's inevitable. But kind of in the way that an earthquake is in a, in a zone of tectonic activity. We know it's possible. We know the big one's coming. We just don't know what or when. Right, so, okay, so ecology tells us about relationships. And the pandemic has shown us our relationships with nature, right? It's shown us how very connected we are to the rest of the species that we share the planet with. And so I think the interesting, the interesting thing here is that pandemics can force us to rethink our definitions of health, right? Our relationship with nature. And when we do this, it also can help change how we frame the problem. It's biomedical, right? If we get sick, we want there to be a, a cure. We would like there to be a vaccine. But it's so much more than biomedical. Right? Because if we think that the problem is just biomedical, something to cure, then we're kind of too late. It's ecological. Right? So let's close with a little bit more from Waltner Taves because he has a lot of wisdom for us. He tells us that all of our species, all species on the planet, ours included, are members of one dysfunctional extended, <coughs> excuse me, extended family. And we really need to learn to live together. Now, as you probably know, since this event was recorded, COVID-19 vaccines have started to be distributed around the world. And this is hopeful news for those of us who feel like we've been living in a dystopic novel, like Rachel said. But even as we move beyond this pandemic, eventually, I think the bigger idea to take away here, my so what moment, is that like it or not, we are a part of nature, this dysfunctional extended family. And learning to live as part of nature, not masters over it, means we need to seek mutually respectful conversations with all our ecological neighbors. Of course, I haven't totally figured out what this looks like yet, but the idea has implications for all sorts of big issues, including pandemics. I'd love to hear what you think. Find us on Facebook at So What Podcast and share your So What moment from this story. For the second half of this episode, we're going to stick with the theme of language, but with a twist. Instead of talking about how we describe pandemics, we're going to hear a story about pandemic language being used to describe a different kind of event. Chris Hubner teaches philosophy and theology at CMU, and he began his part of this panel discussion by describing a pandemic from the 16th century I thought I'd never heard of. Here's a story. 
In the early part of the 16th century, a new viral mutation showed up in the Netherlands. It followed the traditional westward movement of the plagues that is arriving from the east, although not as far east as Asia where the great medieval plagues and some relatively uh, comparatively minor contemporary ones originated. This particular virus entered the country from the German city of Emden, just across the border. It was a nasty virus that hit the epidemiological sweet spot characteristic of the most deadly contagions. It spread easily, it was resilient, and it caused significant and lasting damage. So people quickly became concerned that this virus might just threaten the entire population. It was, in other words, a public health crisis of the most alarming sort. And so a state of emergency was quickly declared. Government officials leapt into action, like government officials do, issuing decrees to demonstrate that they had the situation under control, and announcing stringent measures and new mechanisms designed to contain the transmission of the virus in the hopes of eventually eliminating it altogether. Now, because the spread of this virus was hastened by travel, borders were tightened and restrictions were put in place to prevent it from moving between one community and the next. It all sounds eerily familiar, doesn't it? Only the virus I have been describing wasn't a biological pathogen so much as a theological heresy. As with COVID-19, the experts put their heads together and devised a new name to identify this virus. And this is basically how the term Anabaptism entered into our lexicon. So there's the plot twist. It turns out I had heard of this pandemic. I just hadn't heard it described as a pandemic. Anabaptism, very briefly, is one of many new forms of Christianity that grew during the Reformation period of the 1500s. At this time, the Roman Catholic Church was facing challenges to its near-total authority in Europe. Wanting to maintain its power, the Catholic Church labeled these new movements as heresies, or false beliefs that needed to be stamped out. But though I had heard of Anabaptism, I was curious where it had been described as a pandemic or virus. Chris found this out by picking up what most would consider some strange reading material in the early days of COVID-19. Now, I don't know what you all did uh, in the early days of the pandemic when we found uh, ourselves in a rather sudden period of extended lockdown. Some were baking sourdough bread, and everyone, it seems, watched The Tiger King at one point, and yes, I did too. Um, But one of the other things I did, my pandemic project, so to speak, uh, was I sat down and finally took the chance uh, to read through The Martyr's Mirror. Okay, if you haven't heard of The Martyr's Mirror, you might consider yourself lucky. It's a big, heavy book filled with hundreds, if not thousands, of stories and images of Christians, mainly Anabaptists, being tortured and killed, usually by other Christians, because their beliefs went against official church teachings. It's arguably more gruesome than Tiger King. Like I said, this might not be the first book most people would pick up in a pandemic. But doing so led Chris to some interesting observations. Now, at first, it was simply something to do with some of the extra time I had on my hands during lockdown. 
Um, and it probably also served as a convenient distraction from other more pressing matters like where am I going to find toilet paper <laughs> or how is my daughter going to get home from Guatemala. Um, but somehow in the process of reading, uh, some, I, I discovered some new patterns that, uh, that emerge, right? And I've already alluded to this. I was immediately struck by the significant number of pandemic references that were just littered throughout the text. So living in a pandemic made these pandemic references in the martyr's mirror jump right off the page. But now we might ask why an old book like this would have so much pandemic language in it anyway. As Chris tells us, it's because pandemics have shaped so much of human history. Um, I think this is somehow connected to my big pet peeve of the moment, which is the word unprecedented. Um, right? I mean, how many times haven't you heard someone say, we are living in an unprecedented time or something like this? This is so unprecedented, right? And Rachel reminds us that this is not. Um, now, with respect to something like the Martyr's Mirror, they didn't have a corner on pandemic um, patterns, right? I mean, they're in every text because pandemic experience are pretty prevalent. Um, we have been living with them for, for millennia. Um, sometimes more successfully than others, right? Nothing's unprecedented here, right? I mean, the only thing that's unprecedented, I think, is the depth of our amnesia. Um, and paying attention to what's in front of us, yes, but also what we've, what we've lived through uh, for many, many years um, can go a long way to helping us know how to, um, to live on here. Don't say unprecedented. I had to let Chris get his frustrations out there. But he's right, COVID-19 is not nearly the first pandemic. And that's why the idea of a pandemic is so powerful. In the 1500s, the Black Plague was recent memory. People knew just how disastrous pandemics could be. So describing Anabaptism like a pandemic was an easy way to make people afraid of it and get them to take it really seriously. Here's Chris with a couple more thoughts on the Anabaptist pandemic. Now, just as with biological viruses, some strains of heresy prove to be more deadly than others. And Anabaptism was considered to be far and away the most deadly of the many heresies that were circulating through the Netherlands at this time. You might say that Anabaptism was the theological equivalent of Ebola. You don't want to let this particular heretical infection gain any sort of traction whatsoever, because if you do, it's pretty much game over. And finally, we need to remember that this particular virus was never eradicated, right? So we're going to have to learn how to live with it. It never went away. Just like actual viruses, these social disruptions stick around. This story made me think of how we might use pandemic language now. Are you concerned about how quickly fake news can go viral? We could say we're in an information pandemic as well as a medical one. But like science is not a weapon against COVID-19, maybe we have to go beyond fighting to work out our differences of opinion and belief. I don't have time to get into that today, but be sure to catch the next episode of So What on February 1st, where I'll take a closer look at another CMU face-to-face -face event on polarization. I'll talk to you then. We'll be releasing new episodes on the first of every month, you can find and subscribe to So What wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and remember to share your thoughts and read what others had to say 
on our Facebook page at So What Podcast. That's facebook.com slash So What Podcast. I'm Jonas Cornelson. Let's talk again soon.